Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, there it is. Good morning, everyone. Morning, church. If you have a Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 3 with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew. And if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that with you today. Acts chapter 3. We're uh, making our way through the, the book of Acts. So uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And uh, we're, we're flying at a rapid pace, really. We, we've reached chapter 3, and uh, it's only been a month and a half. So we're doing pretty well. So Acts chapter 3, our goal is to get through the entire chapter this morning. Uh, It's not a lot of verses, it's just one little story that then carries on to the next chapter, but that's where we are. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at Pentecost. We've been looking at Acts chapter 2 and what it means to be the church. And so Acts chapter 2 was when the church was founded, it was birthed. We saw that there was one Passover, one Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. He was resurrected as the first fruits on the, on the day of first fruits. And then some 50 days later at Pentecost, that's the, that's the feast of harvest. We see a harvest of souls. Some 3,000 were saved on that day and the church was birthed. And so we've been looking at what it looks like to be an Acts model church. And so this morning, we're actually going to look at what it looks like to be uh, an Acts model for missions. And so we see what took place was the church was founded, and then it carries itself out in the mission of what God had designed, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. So we see this taking place. That kind of gives you a little bit uh, of where we've been over the last several weeks. And, and what I want to tell you is that we are a missions-minded church. Now, our mission statement is Christ, community, commission. We believe Christ is first and foremost. We believe that Christ should be exalted. Uh, the things that we say, the things that we do, how we sing songs are all Christ-centric. We want people to walk away knowing that it is all about Christ and Him crucified, and there's nothing else really we need to talk about because it's all about Jesus. Amen? So, we're Christ-centered. That then carries on into community, Christ's community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was Christ-centric, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread with one another. The word fellowship there in the Greek means that they were, they were in common. They had things in common with one another, and what brings us together is Christ. And so the church gathered, Ecclesia had koinonia, if you want to get into the Greek. Uh, they were a gathering that had things in common. This is what the church was. And so we feel like and we believe that if you're going to be an Acts model church, that there's going to be a gathering of believers, okay? And now that becomes a little more difficult in these days. Am I right? But what we do is we, we hold to the scriptural mandate that we are to be a church that gathers together and have fellowship with one another. And then from that, it carries on to commission. We believe that Jesus Christ gave us all the great commission that we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're all called to be his witnesses throughout the world. So I got all that intro in there, and that's who we are. That's who we strive to be. And so this year, when it comes to missions, it's gotten a little more difficult. And the reason it's gotten a little more difficult, in case you haven't seen the news, is that there's travel bans. There's places you can't go. There's countries that are on lockdown. We have dear friends right now in in countries that we've been talking to, different pastors and different missionaries that are unable to meet. Their church has been shut down because of a governmental lockdown. They're not allowed to gather together. And so we need to be lifting up 
prayers for our brothers and sisters that we're united with. Even though we're separated by an ocean, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and they're hurting because they're not gathering together the way that the church is called to do so. So one of the things that we did this year is is, uh, we gave above and beyond. And if you were here during our... our, um, our um, class that we gave, or the, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Business meeting. It's not a class. It's a business meeting. All right, so if you're here for the business meeting, then, then you know that we were able to give above and beyond this year and that we're actually going to be providing some COVID relief to missionaries that we support, missionaries and pastors. And so Pastor Al, over the last several weeks, has been calling and getting their stories and listening to how COVID has impacted different missionaries that we support. And uh, as, as we've had, he's had conversations, some of those have been through tears, and just how difficult the call is to carry out the mission that God's called us to. Not only that, did we give above and beyond, but we also said that we were going to give a Christmas offering gift to our partnership in Kenya, uh, the House of Mercy Children's Home and Shepherd's Heart International. And so what we did is last year we were able to give bunk beds. This year we gave a, a water tank and a sewing machine. And I said, it's not as pretty as giving bunk beds, right? But they need water and they need a sewing machine because the sewing machine is actually a knitting machine where you take the thread and you can make fabric. And from the fabric, you can make your school uniforms. And so they're able to provide their own school uniforms. But not only that, they're able to make other people's school uniforms so that they can sell those and be more self-sufficient. And so they were very appreciative of the gift that you gave. You gave about $4,500, and they sent this video to thank you. I know you may not have heard everything she said, but I can assure you she, she said thank you. Okay, so <laughs> rooster crowing and all going on in the background. Uh, thank you, church, for being mission-minded and for having a heart for missions. And as we get into scripture this morning, you're going to see the importance of mission and what it looks like to have an Acts model for missions. And so as we get into scripture this morning, I want to lift us up in prayer, and I want to lift them up in prayer, and I want to lift up all of our missionary partnerships up in prayer because we desperately need the power of God to continue through what he's called us to do. Amen? So let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you. We thank you so much for uh, the warm and vibrant video that we saw just now of a church, of a family, of brothers and sisters in Christ across oceans who dearly love you and how we can be united together in that, in that love of you, that the union that brings us together is through your blood, Jesus. And we thank you for shedding your blood on our behalf. Father, I do lift up our missionary partnerships to you. As we celebrate today on a Sunday, Lord, there's many who are unable to meet. And Lord, we ask that by the presence and the power of your spirit that you would instill in them hope, encouragement, peace, and strength right now. Father, we thank you for the time we have to get into your word. We would ask God that you would help us divide it correctly and accurately. You would help us to understand 
what it looks like to be a mission-minded body of believers. In Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter 3, an Acts model for missions. The first thing I want you to see is an Acts model for missions sees people where they are. An Acts model for missions sees people where they are. So picking up verse 1, going through verse 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What a wonderful story, isn't it? You, you can almost visually see this man being taken by the hand and leaping and jumping and shouting and running into the church. And I guarantee you, if that happened here, there would, there would be some alarm. Am I right? If you saw someone running in this church, leaping and hollering and, and, and yelling praises, you'd be like, Well, that doesn't happen every day, you know, and not only that, but this is the guy that everyone has seen day in and day out because they pick him up and they carry him there and he's been lame since birth. He's, there's never been a day in this man's life where he's been able to walk. And then all of a sudden, by the grace of God, by the power of God, he is, he is healed and he's able to jump up and run and holler and shout and give praise to God. But we can't miss the fact that there's two men walking to the temple for the hour of prayer. These two men, Peter and John. Peter and John, they're walking together, going to the temple. Now we realize that it took till about 70 AD for there to be a real separation between the Jewish church and the Christian church, but they're still going along. They're still going to the temple together. They're going at the hour of prayer. And you've got Peter, probably the oldest of the disciples, the one who just a couple of weeks ago denied Christ three times. Not only that, He was the one that said, I'll never deny you, and he cut off a guy's ear, right? you got this guy, and then you've got John, probably the youngest of all the disciples, who really never left his side, and we know this because while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he commends the care of his mother over to John. If there's any two men that could be more different, it's these two men. They could have been arguing about how they both handled the situation when Jesus was arrested and crucified, but they're not doing that. They're united in Christ. And there's going to be some of us that will come to church for the hour of prayer on Sunday morning, and we may be so totally different than the person we're walking in with, but we have one thing in common, and it's Jesus Christ, and we come to worship him. And so whether you're the guy who's, who's uh, you know, full of angst and you cut off ears, or you're the young man who's just trying to be faithful and quiet, you can come in here together and you can worship God because he's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Again, this man, he's laying there asking and begging 
For Jewish custom, it was when you went to worship, you would also not only just go and, and, and do your duty, but you would look to give alms. You would go to, and give to those who were in need. And that's why this man was laid there. So it was, it was actually a good thing for you to do to actually throw some money in his jar. But this man's laying there, and they're noticing that this man has never walked. He was born this way. Now, this, this issue came up back in John chapter 9, but it was a man who was born blind. And the disciples, when they see the man who was born blind, they want to make it a theological discussion or a moral argument, or they want to know, hey, why is this man the way he is? And John chapter 9 reads this way. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Peter and John, they didn't begin to have a theological argument of why is this man laying here? What is he doing? What happens if we give him money? If we give him money, what's he going to spend it on? They didn't have any of these arguments. They didn't have any of these thoughts. They just thought, hey, we remember a time when there was a man that was born blind and God said, hey, we are to do what we need to do so the glory of God could be seen in his life because it's not his sin or his parents' sin. It's this thing called original sin that affects all of us. And though we may not be physically blind and we may not be physically lame, there is a spiritual blindness and there is a spiritual lameness that's on all of us. And if it, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we would not be spiritually healed. And so this is a moment for them to say, hey, look, this man is infected by the very thing that we're all infected with, original sin. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. What Paul says is we are without excuse because every single one of us have been infected by the pride that happened in the garden. And it's infected all of us. Verse 17, though, of chapter 5, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So just because we have been marred by sin and the original sin that took place in the garden. There is one that brings righteousness and hope and love, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so though we are maybe spiritually blind or spiritually lame, those things happen in our lives so the glory of God could be seen in us when he redeems us. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. They're going into the temple. I can't help but think that part of this is part of the routine. It's the hour of prayer. What do you do on Sunday mornings? Well, you go to church. That's what you're supposed to do. It's part of the routine. It's possible for us to go about our religious routines and ignore hurting people all around us. It's possible for us to make a theological or a moral issue about someone and never see the spiritual condition that, that they're in. It's easy for us to go through throughout the religious routine. That's oh, my hour of prayer. Let me just throw a little bit of money in here. Let me, not, let me not actually fixate my eyes on this person. Let me just kind of look past them and go on because I've got religious duties to attend to. But Spurgeon says it this way. Whenever you see a man in sorrow and in trouble, the way to look at it is not to blame him or to inquire how he came there, 
but to say, here's an opening for God's almighty love. Here's an occasion for the display of the grace and the goodness of our Lord. Church, I've been guilty of looking past the hurting because I'm too busy on my religious routine. I'm too busy and too quick to judge and say, oh, they're probably like this because they did this and made this decision. I'm quick to say, oh, this is a theological or a moral issue rather than seeing that this is an opportunity for the glory of God to be seen in their life. The mission of the early church was characterized by a driving, deep concern for the physical and spiritual hurts of people all around them. Let me say that one more time. The mission of the early church was characterized by a driving, deep concern for the physical and spiritual hurts of people all around them. As we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see a driving, deep concern that is on the people of God. I'm afraid that what the church is characterized by today is more a debilitating desire for Christian consumerism and comforts that religiously focus on spiritualism and themselves. What can I get out of church? How can I feel better about myself? It's all about patting myself on the back and keeping the routine and doing these things and ignoring the actual hurts that are in the world. But the mission of the early church was characterized by a driving deep concern for the physical and spiritual hurts of people all around them. Verse 4, And Peter, he directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood and began to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I've already alluded to it. But what happens when you pull up at the stop sign or you pull up at the red light and there's someone there who's begging? Do you direct your gaze at them or do you direct your gaze away from them? I mean, it, if I'm going to be honest with you, I, I kind of look ahead. Like, I get my hands on the steering wheel, and I kind of look ahead, and I think if I make eye contact, then I have to respond. But if I don't make eye contact, then I can go about my day. Am I the only one? It's easy particularly in our church culture, to come to church Sunday after Sunday and never meaningfully engage the needs of those around us. And it's very easy for us to not allow our gaze to ever fixate on the real problems that we see. The church is a gathering of people who need to stop pretending that everything's okay. Can I say that again? The church is a gathering of people that need to stop pretending that everything's okay. Typically, the church is a gathering of broken people who come in here and pretend that we're not broken. But every one of us has come in here carrying something. And we're going to put a church face on and act like it's okay. It's easy to never fixate our eyes on the real issues, the hurts, 
Because if we do that, then we have to show a genuine driving concern. David Platt put it this way. The the church progresses. Church history progresses. You come to the 18th, the 19th, the 20th centuries, and you begin to see the development of the Industrial Revolution. And the church is a business that is run by the clergy. And you can interact with ministers and you can interact with servants if you go to church, if you go to a building. But don't expect them to come to you. And somewhere along the way, the purity of the care and concern of the early church completely faded away. And we've got to recapture what it means to be a church and what it means to be concerned, deeply concerned about the hurts that are represented in this room as well as the hurts that are represented outside of this room. Acts takes us back to the foundation of the church. When Christ placed his spirit in the hearts of men and he poured his spirit out on all flesh so that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there was a gathering of people that were deeply concerned, not only about the hurts in the world, but also the hurts that were in the gathering of people. And they began to share with one another and take care of one another because there was an overwhelming love of Jesus Christ on them. And church, we need to recapture what it looks like to be the early church. The church is never a building that you attend. And we say it, we say it so often, I'm going to church today, I'm going to church today. And I know that's just the way we, we say things. We are the church today. We're a gathering, a gathering body of believers who have fellowship with one another. Second thing I want you to see, an Acts model for mission seeks an opportunity to share Christ. Let's pick up verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And Peter, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. If missions is never more than social justice and good deeds, it's not missions. If missions is never more than social justice and good deeds, it's not missions. Missions is not only seeing the physical needs of others, but it's seeking an opportunity to share with them to heal the spiritual needs of others. We have to seek an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. And if Christ isn't shared, it isn't missions. It can be really good. It can be a good deed. It can be something that's needed. If we fixate our eyes on those who are hurting around us and we try to physically meet that need, that's a, that's a good thing. But if we never take it the step further to proclaim Jesus Christ, it's not missions. There's a lot of good things that get done in the name of Christianity all the time. There's a lot of good things that get get done in the name of a church all the time. 
And sometimes those things are done, but they're not done under the banner of Christ. They're done under a banner of a lower name. And you hear things like, look at what we did. Look at how we're involved. Look at how we helped. We served. We did this and we did that. But the miracle that was performed here in Acts chapter 3 has two parts to missions. There's a miracle performed and Christ is proclaimed. And we can't forget that God wants to meet the needs of those around us, but he also wants his name proclaimed for the glory of God. These apostles, they were charged with continuing the ministry of Jesus and the establishment of the church. So as we see miracles take place by the power of Jesus Christ, they're done in order to advance the gospel message and to give some some direction to the early church and to grow the early church, to make them witnesses. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety, we have made him walk? I love this. Peter's like, why are you looking at me? I didn't do anything. There, there is nothing good in me. There's, there's no good deed in me. There's no good moral in me that can make this man be healed. I didn't do anything. Why are you looking as if my piety and my power had something to do with this? Because it, it didn't. He is quickly to deflect that off to Christ. The word piety, the word actually means goodness or reverence or a quality of being religious. But there's a different word that sneaks in, and it's called pietism. Pietism is a hyper-focus on one's own performance and right actions without the dependence upon Christ. There's a danger of pietism in the church where we begin to fixate and focus on our good works and what we've done rather than walking in dependence of Jesus Christ and his power. The Christian's Focus becomes more about one's own personal improvement plan rather than their own personal evangelistic purpose. I know this is difficult to understand because this is kind of religious terminology, but I want you to understand that if all of our focus is on our personal improvement plan and not on the mission that God's called us to, then we're not fulfilling the biblical call of being a Christian. Yes, he changes us. And it's a work of sanctification. It's not by cleaning ourselves up and putting on clean clothes and acting like we know what to do at church and follow all the rules. It is about him day in and day out chipping away at the sins that have clung to us for years. It's what he does. Don't look at me for my personal piety and my power. I didn't do anything is what Peter says. Look at Christ. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. This, to this we are his witnesses. I want you to understand the first thing I notice about Peter's preaching, his apostolic preaching, here, here he does it again. He takes the Old Testament, he refers back to the prophets, he refers back to the, the forefathers, and he says all of that is pointing towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the author of life, whom you killed. The thing that I notice about Peter's preaching is it's never politically correct. Don't you agree? And here's, here's a newsflash. If you want to proclaim Jesus you will never be politically correct. If you proclaim Christ, 
You will never be politically correct. You will always offend people. You will always push people who want to live in their sin to a point of being disgusted with you because oh, you, don't, you don't accept us. You're, you're, so, you're so old school. You're so old-minded in the way that you think. If you proclaim Christ, you will not be politically correct because if you elevate Christ, you always expose sin. Listen, if you decide to elevate Christ in your life, it will expose sin in your heart. If you continue to go through the motions of Christianity without elevating Christ, you can live in sin and think that you're a good person. But if you will elevate Christ, he will expose the darkest areas of your heart because he is the light that has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. If you choose to elevate Christ in your conversations with people throughout the day, throughout the week, you will elevate Christ in a way that exposes sin, not only in your life, but also in the lives of those around you. And sometimes people get really offended when you do that. So you can't proclaim Christ and be politically correct at the same time because Peter says it this way, and you killed the author of life. Pilate was going to release him, but you would rather have a murderer than the Messiah. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. An Acts model for mission sees people where they are, but it also seeks an opportunity to elevate Christ When you elevate Christ, you expose sin. However, if we disregard the proclamation of Jesus to a lost and dark and dying world, we inadvertently degrade the severity of sin that's both in us and in others, and we are content to go about our religious routines focusing on good deeds and personal pietism that actually does little to promote Christ or save or sanctify those who are lost. And I know this from personal, personal uh, circumstances. A few weeks ago, I, I would love to be the pastor who gets up here and tells you how good I am, but I'm going to go uh, come up here and tell you how bad I am. How about that? A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went on a double date down to the choo-choo with another couple. And our sons were on double dates with their girlfriends, and they were out ice skating. And we were not ice skating because we've reached an age where we realize if we fall, we could break something. So we were, we were sitting inside the choo-choo. Having our coffee, letting them be cold, we were staying warm. And sure enough, there's a lady. It's freezing cold. It's in the 20s that night. And there's a lady who comes in. She's very disheveled. She's, she's obviously probably homeless, and she's walking up to me with flip-flops on. And as she approaches our, our little circle, our little table area there, everyone in the circle looks at me. What are you going to do, Pastor? They're, I'm just going to write them out. They diverted their gaze, okay? They diverted it towards me. All right, you're in charge. You're the professional. And so sure enough, I began to ask this lady some questions, and she gave her, her planned speech. And as I asked questions, I was able to quickly 
point out all the flaws in her story. I looked at her, but I didn't, I didn't look at her with compassion. And as we talked, I said, ma'am, if you are cold and if you are hungry, I will be happy to buy your dinner tonight. And with every intention, I walked over to the restaurant and I purchased her food after a long uh, menu argument <laughs> that took place about what was on the menu. I bought her food and I had every intention of giving her the food and then saying, ma'am, I'm going to give you this food, but I really need to tell you about Jesus Christ. But I didn't. I gave her the food and I said, God bless and walked off. It's really easy for us to see the hurts of people physically and not speak up to the hurts of people spiritually. Am I right? It's so difficult sometimes to say, well, look what I did. But if I didn't do it for an eternal purpose, what good is it? Because you can throw money in a jar, but the man's going to be lame the next day. You can buy a dinner but she's going to be hungry in the morning. But if you can share the bread of life, it can have eternal consequences, eternal ramifications. We need to be a church that sees and acts model for missions that we look at those who are hurting, but we also are willing to seek the opportunity to proclaim Christ. And when we proclaim Christ, when we elevate Christ, we expose sin. So a third one is an Acts model for missions. See sin as a serious problem. If we fail to see sin as a serious problem, we'll never speak up against sin. Acts chapter 3, starting verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your forefathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, all too often, we as a church, we function as a group of believers who are broken but ignore the brokenness that we bring in. There should be a people, we should be a people, however, that are continually reminded of the sin that we carry. They have been blotted out. But the wounds are still there. The temptations are still there. And if we ignore sin, the wrath of God is still there. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the wrath of God and how you can't really fully understand the love of God unless you understand the wrath of God. And so Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God, said this, O sinner, you cannot give any sound reason why you have not dropped into the pit of hell since you rose from your bed this morning, except that the grace of God in his hand has held you up. Wow. The church needs to see sin for what it is and stop making excuses for it. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, verse 17, as did also the rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Peter calls sins, sins. We live in a culture that likes to call sin anything but sin. We like to call it a mistake. Oh, I made a mistake. We like to call it a shortcoming. You know, I just can't quite get that one under control. We like to call it a struggle. Yeah, I struggle with this. We like to call it something I'm working on. Yeah, I'm working on this. Sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. Sin is the action that we commit that put Christ on a cross. It's not some culturally accepted character flaw or a mere compromise in our conduct. Sin is a catastrophic betrayal of Christ. Kids love to make the excuse, I didn't know. You ever notice that? Every time I'd get on my kids, I'd be like, you did this. And they'd be like, I didn't know. Now, husbands also love this same excuse. Am I right? Wife comes in, you did the dishes wrong. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know I did it wrong. Now, one time when we were riding in the car, my son Eli, he would draw on his little pad, and he would make all these little cartoon characters and all these different superheroes, and he would draw them out. And evidently, one time, that pad of paper just wasn't enough, you know, for him to draw on, so he decided to take the pen and draw all the way down the side of the door on the inside of the car. And so when we got, when we got to where we were going, I opened up the, the door, and he's sitting there in his little car seat, there's all this pink or this, this pin markings all over the inside of the car. And I was like, what are you doing? And my wife and all her wisdom and understanding and calm demeanor puts her hand on me. Jeff, have you ever told him not to do that? No, I've never told him not to draw on the car. Well, then I don't think you can get on to him for it. But I want to. I want him to feel my wrath. You see, the thing is, these, Peter says, you acted in ignorance. You didn't know. But your ignorance isn't justified because your ignorance is due to the fact that you didn't read the word of God. All of the prophets have foretold the Messiah. If you had been reading the word, then you would know that this is who this is. Sometimes we claim ignorance, but I didn't know because we ignore the word of God. Well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to know what he tells me I can and can't do. I just want to do what I want to do and then be ignorant. I, I didn't know. Peter says, just because you claim ignorance doesn't mean you're without excuse. The atheist says there is no God, where the agnostic says you can't know if there's a God. Agnostic means without knowledge. The Latin term for agnostic means ignoramus. You like that, don't you? Oh, they're an agnostic? 
they're an ignoramus. It's ignorance. I choose to live in ignorance of there is a God who is a holy, holy, holy wrath against sin. There is ignorance that leads to sin. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but they still need to be forgiven. Ignorance of sin is due to ignoring the plain teachings of God's word. R.C. Sproul put it this way, Our culture twists the truth to say that God loves everyone despite of their ignorance and sin. That is the way many preach today, but that is not how Peter preached. Let me say that again. Our culture twists the truth to say that God loves everyone despite of their ignorance and sin. And that's how many preach today, but that is not how Peter preached. Peter says, you acted in ignorance and you need to repent. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know what's so wonderful about repentance? It brings refreshing and restoration. Now, if I had a dry erase board up here. And let's say I took all the sins that you committed over the past week from last Sunday to this Sunday, and I wrote down all your sins on dry erase board, and I was threatening to show them to the church. There's some of you in here that would be getting really, really nervous. Am I right? Some of you would be like, I don't care. I don't care what people know. I'm tough. But there's some of us that would be really like, ooh, I don't want people to know what I did. That's, uh, that's pretty. And I said, but the grace of God and I erase it has blotted out the sins that you committed through your repentance. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Whew, man, that's refreshing. I got really nervous there for a second. But what if every sin that you've ever committed was on a list of a dry erase board and it was standing before a holy, holy, holy God? And one day you'll stand there before him. And if it isn't for the blood of Jesus Christ that has blotted out the sins in your life, you'll stand there guilty. That's why we repent. So that times of refreshing and restoration will come. And I would guarantee you that as you stand before the throne of God with a list of sins there that you haven't repented of, your response will not be, but I didn't know. I didn't know. I was ignorant. How could I have known? By the word of God. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. I want you to understand this morning, in closing, an Acts model for missions is focused on sharing the gospel, the good news that is turning everyone from their wickedness. This morning, is the good news turning you from wickedness is it taking you from darkness to light? Are there sins in your life that you know that you need to repent of, that you know that you've been pretending aren't there? Maybe you've been saying, ah, we'll just, we'll just plead ignorance on this part. Is God convicting you? Is he leading you by his spirit to repent? Peter would say, the time of ignorance is gone.
it's time to repent so that times of refreshing and restoration will come. I want us to respond this morning in worship. And I want us to respond how the Spirit's leading. As we leave today, we respond in the way that we worship as we leave. We look at those who are hurting and lost around us. We don't divert our gaze, but we are a people who are compelled by the love of Christ to reach out. And not just to meet physical needs, but to proclaim Jesus Christ. And when we proclaim Jesus, when we elevate Jesus, we expose sin. If sin's been exposed in your heart today, will you repent? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.